0: Suckers going up. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Show. I'm Steve W. I'm here with Steve D this evening. It's Thursday, the 19th of January, and we've got quite a bit to talk about. It's earnings season, so there's plenty going on there. But first of all, uh, I'm going to ask Steve how his week's been in a moment. But unusually, since I'm the person hosting, I'm going to jump the gun and go first here. My news for this week is that i finally completed a house purchase. Yay! it's kind of feels good it kind of feels like the real work starts now both in terms of paying down the debt that we took out to buy the thing and in terms of turning it into well it is livable but somewhere where it's nice to live rather than somewhere that we could uh, live pretty well the thing seems to be in decent shape there haven't been any particularly nasty surprises we closed that deal on monday and it's now thursday so we've had a few looks at it things seem pretty good here how about you steve have you bought anything interesting in the last few days well, uh, this week
1: seems to have been a very frivolous week, but some of the things I didn't actually purchase uh, this week. But the first thing that has turned up for me, uh, and congratulations on your house, by the way. I have said that, by the way. This isn't the first, this isn't news for me. I no, Steve was the...
0: advising me on this purchase as we went along.
1: Yes, I've probably seen as much of the house as Steve has, uh, although via their architectural plans. Um, but yes, so I have, uh, well, it was it was a running joke for people who've listened to the show for a really long time, that I used to tease Paul about his not buying ASML. And the funny part at that point was that I was up about 70 or 80%. So I thought it'd be fun to buy one of these ticker meters and get it to display the uh, ASML share price and, uh, and how up I am on it and just have it behind me in the set but just just to remind Paul how stupid he is. Unfortunately, it's taken about 13 or 14 months to turn up. So in that
0: period of time, Paul has bought ASML at a fairly decent price. So it's not as funny anymore. But I think what you want to do is set it to the AT&T share price so we can wonder each week whether it's still working or not or whether it's just got stuck.
1: Yeah, that- that would be wonderful. We just need a way to wind up Paul with this. Otherwise, I might just put my portfolio on it and let it, and let it just uh, sort of flick around. But, yeah, it's a pretty cool little thing. And, again, we're not sponsored by it. I kind of wish we were because it's a cool little product. But it's got a ink screen, kind of like what you would get on a Kindle or something okay. like that. And it's got a nice little backlight on it as well so you can see it. It, it is kind of kind of neat and easy to set up as well. The other thing I've bought, Steve, is a lemon tree. And uh, I was uh, browsing the uh, sort of promotions tab of my Gmail. On Sunday, and uh, I am uh, a shareholder of this company's Patch Plants. And uh, they have just uh, I don't know if I'm actually allowed to say what's just happened to them, but something has happened to them, uh, and I thought to celebrate. Uh, I would uh, treat myself to one of their plants. I, I have regularly treated myself to their plants. I-, I have lots of plants in my house. But I, I bought myself a-, a-, a lemon tree. It's about waist height at the moment. It's on a kind of dwarf fruit, so I don't think it's ever going to get massive. But it came with ten full size lemons on it, three of which I have entrusted to my niece to go and make me a lemon drizzle cake. Are you a fan of the
0: lemon drizzle cake, Steve? <laughs> uh it's not top of my list my wife has a lemon tree that we grew i think we've grown a total of about four lemons on it now ever but she did make one into a very good lemon meringue pie the only snag with that is there's quite a lot that goes into that that's not just the lemons and it's quite a lot of work so she's not sure she wants to do that again particularly but i think a kind of waist high lemon tree is a good thing it stops fruit trees growing too high makes them awkward to prune or anything like that you'll be fine looking after that out of interest which one are you hoping for better growth from the asml thing or the lemon tree
1: Oh, do you know what? I really like lemons, so I, I might be tempted to go for the lemon tree in this regard. But the only problem is, is that I really like apples as well, and we've got a massive apple tree in the back garden. But there's nothing worse than liking apples and having five billion apples fall off the thing every year. Like, there's just nothing I can do with them. I, 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 Do you know those big garden waste sacks? I feel four of them probably every fortnight and just leave them outside of my outside of my uh, drive and just
0: like please somebody take them
1: <laughs> it's like i'm so sick of apple pies and things like that
0: cool so anyone in the uh, kind of broadly hull area i don't think it's a great secret that's where you uh, a base looking for a large quantity of apples then go go show up well you'll find steve's house it's the one with an enormous garden waste sack full of fruit outside of it yeah and lemons probably yeah. next uh, four million apples and two lemons <laughs> uh, if you'd like either of those things um i was uh looking at a few kind of fruit related options i'm glad to know that you're a, a shareholder in this steve i was i hadn't heard of patch before now i was looking at a different thing which made it look much more complicated they've got some quite nice looking uh dwarf plants that the patch and they've given them names for some reason that i don't quite understand yeah
1: makes it trickier when you're trying to identify what they are again six months down the line and mm. remember
0: what what's sort whole of watering and fertilizing schedule you're supposed to be on yeah oh, wow you're supposed to fertilize them and stuff yeah these sound like more work than i was expecting them to be i had mainly set my filters for stuff that was self-pollinating because i thought i can't be bothered to look after two of them to be honest well, well, they have an unkillable section, Steve, which might be right up your street. That does sound like it's up my street, to be honest. I was looking for something that was fairly low maintenance. Anyway, enough of the plain gardening show. <laughs> uh, uh, comments down below for what Steve should either do with his apples or what he should put on his ticket meter for when Paul gets back. Unless you're Paul, but you're not Paul, because he won't be watching this. So anyway, it's earnings season and the market's just been a little bit choppy over the last couple of days. By the way, Steve, since this is about stocks and stuff, how's your portfolio been? Uh, today it's... Well, yes yesterday was my end of my green streak
1: I think I've been pretty much green yeah (laughs) I wasn't even mean to do that (laughs) but every uh, I think pretty much every day every trading day since we turned to the new year I think I've been green so it's been a pretty good start yesterday I was 0.2 of a percent down or something like that today though a bit worse 0.81 of a percent down and I think we've had an FX swing as well Uh, I haven't really had chance today to look at why uh, it's moved like this but I have noticed Adjens down about 6.5%. And I don't think their earnings are due just yet. So that might be an interesting one to pick up on. Steve, how about your stocks?
0: Yeah, broadly similar, which I think probably tells me it's largely an FX thing. Things have just come off in the last couple of days or so. I didn't see anything particularly exciting in the news that explained to me why that was happening i heard jamie diamond had been talking about terminal rates being higher than perhaps the fed were expecting and he's kind of influential for for good reason he's a very intelligent and smart uh, and switched on kind of guy so if he's expecting rates to be higher than five or so percent maybe that's kind of weighing on the market as people listen to what he has to say i'm not sure it would have the kind of effect that we're seeing here and i also saw that inflation in the uk was was down i think it's only at about 10 percent or so now so so here comes the recovery uh the other news i heard come up on my thing was that bitcoin was rallying too back up to its back up to its pre um ftx crash levels so, so that's still fairly well down in the grand scheme of things but but that's a rally of a sort
1: little little link for you there as well because uh, Jamie Dimon spoke about Bitcoin today and he said um, Bitcoin has been a colossal waste of time
0: and it's just rocks. Mm, Tell that to the guy in charge of El Salvador. Mm. Uh, But anyway, let's talk about things that produce proper earnings. And let's start with Jamie Dimon then, shall we, and some banks. It's earnings season. It's bank earnings season because that's what usually comes first. Steve's got an earnings call that's not... A bank coming up but generally the big banks in the u.s have been reporting we're supposed to take an interest in these because they're meant to tell us things about the u.s economy and how it's doing because banks are obviously very central to that they have a good idea on who's borrowing what who's doing what with that money and who's struggling to repay it again um, so the banks can be interesting. We'll come back to that idea in just a moment, but here's a kind of brief rundown of what's been going on, and you'll spot some similar themes. Let's start with where we were last week. I was talking about Bank of America and trying to convince Paul to buy it. He's since told me it's top of some index or other that neither of us had ever heard of, but make of that what you will. Uh, their revenues came in at $24.66 billion. That was up 11% compared to a year ago. Their earnings per share were $0.85, which is up 6% from a year before. They posted a $1.1 billion loan loss reserve, so the money they put aside and don't use for uh, covering loans that have gone bad effectively. Their net interest income, so the money they make from taking in deposits and sending out loans, was up by 29%, and their investment banking fees were down by about 50%, which is... I suppose, kind of what you might expect in a tighter economic environment. Better on net interest income, worse on investment banking. Brian Moynihan said they were expecting in 2023, I think, a recession of fairly unspecified scale, but I think on the lower end of, on the minor end of things. JP Morgan's a similar bank. We'll start with that one as well. Their revenues were up 17% to $35.57 billion. Earnings per share were up 6% to $3.57 billion. Uh, another 2.3 billion credit loss reserve, which was 49% higher than the last quarter. Net interest income up 40%, investment banking fees down 52%. Um, Jamie Dimon's forecasting a mild recession, but still with quite a bit of uncertainty around that. Let's take those two to start with. Steve, anything, anything stand out to you there particularly? Well, it's the
1: environment that we expected to see, isn't it? Net interest income up because rates are up, and that means that banks are charging more for their products that they're learning out and investment banking is weighing down on these companies because there's not a lot of deal making going on out there there's not an awful lot of acquisitions there's not an awful lot of mergers there's not an awful lot of ipos uh, and there's definitely no SPACs. so um all of these kind of um you know and anybody with an investment banking arm is seeing some pretty um you know is, is seeing a a, a a drawback in in the fees that they're able to attract um in terms of loan um, reserves, then this is a, obviously going to be a drag on all of their earnings. So you could theoretically add those back in if you don't believe that we're going to see some massive um, some massive kind of recession ahead there where they're going to have to draw on these reserves. They have invariably added these uh, loan loss reserves back in almost untouched uh, over the last few years. So there is always a chance that this happens again. Uh, interesting to see that they're both they're both tempered. I think Moynihan, uh, was, uh, he was straight on recession last quarter, and Jamie Dimon was forecasting an economic hurricane. So uh, it's nice to see that we have slipped back into mild recession, um, which is what I think is probably the most likely outcome, even though I have um, said otherwise uh, in my predictions. But it, it, I think that's probably where we're heading. Steve, is anything jumping out of these that I've missed?
0: No, the point about uh, what you called before a soft landing, but now a mild recession, I mean, I view a mild recession as halfway between the kind of landing I was expecting and the soft landing that you were boldly predicting at the start of the year. I guess it's not quite so soft, but a mild recession would be, I think that would be a reasonable exit cost from all of this, to be fair. I would think that Powell had done a good job if he managed to engineer that. I said at the top that we're supposed to pay attention to the banks because they give us a feel for what's going on in the economy. They don't really tell me anything much about this other than doing what I already thought the economy was doing based on the kind of macroeconomic data that I'm familiar with from the US. Okay, interest rates have gone higher. That largely means what we thought it would mean. It's a worse time for doing kind of M&A activity it's a, because the debt costs more to do it. It's a worse time for trying to launch SPACs and it's harder to find capital because buyers are less willing. So fees for investment banking and SPACs and m a and IPOs and all that kind of thing are down like you would expect and interest net interest income is higher. And because there's a higher rate, there's a higher risk of default, at least in some cases. So there's more money being put aside that didn't particularly educate me. I mean, I I don't want to act too smart here because I'll come back in a second to uh, Goldman, which is a bank that did surprise me very much in what should be a fairly obvious way. But I didn't think this really told me anything much about the state of the US economy that I wasn't already thinking was at least roughly the case.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it, generally these the um, we look at the banks as a bellwether for the economy. So we would look at these and say, if the if these guys are coming in very light on everything, then we then we know that generally speaking again the uh the rest of the economy is likely to be suffering in the same sort of way so it was interesting today to see that um that the the davos uh sort of whatever it is the hearing or the event is on in switzerland at the moment and it, it was interesting to see that the imf um they spoke yesterday and said that um essentially the world's debt burden has started to drop due to both inflation and the economic recovery from the pandemic so in a way we are inflating away the debt which is what inflation kind of tends to do over the long time it's it's interesting to see that in the IMF figures that we've gone from 99% um global debt to global gdp as a, as a as a figure um over the last i think that was the last year that was recorded and it's actually now fallen to 91% so that is in line with the inflation figures that we've been broadly seeing in the west as well so uh, it is interesting to see this kind of global economic recovery even the uh, even some of the euro banks now are coming out and saying that they think that europe will uh, avoid a recession too so this is potentially interesting times it would be very interesting to see only the uk fall into a recession which i'm i'm almost certain is going to happen i mean if the euros avoid it and the
0: us avoid it we're going to look pretty silly We are going to look pretty silly. I think the blame, rightly or wrongly, will go on that mini-budget thing, because that's the main thing that we've done differently to them. The recession, by the way, was cancelled the other day with news that we'd had economic growth in the UK. I don't know if you heard this story. one, Yeah, Yeah, one. one, because of the World Cup. Everyone went down the pub and spent their money there. I mean, I'm not sure that's particularly going to drive the UK's economy, broadly speaking, but... It's good to see people spending money. And I heard, saw that I don't really like this expression very much, but the consumer in the UK was in good shape. Balances were still kind of higher than they are than they were pre-COVID. So there's still money there to be spent from UK consumers. We just haven't done it yet. Yeah, and it was interesting that you could see it in... Uh, sorry to jettison off to another
1: point, but the um, I don't know whether you've seen ASOS's results that came through as well. Uh, they had broadly flat results in the UK and in the EU and a bit of growth in the US which you would expect because they are only a small part of a very big market so that would be quite easy for them to get growth but it was interesting to see that because you could see the strength of spending in uh, in ASOS's brand and off the back of that everybody thought Boohoo would do the same but Boohoo came up and said I think they were minus 17% on their sales or minus 14% so it was a much bigger fall but um, interesting to see the strength of the consumer in the UK. I don't get that sense uh, from People, well, I always think January is an awful time for recording stats anyway, because it always seems to be a very long month for everybody. Everybody seems to get paid a week early and it ends up being a very long month. And, you know, at work at the moment. There's definitely not anybody spending money except me on stupid things like lemon trees. So, um, yeah, I think it'll be interesting. I still expect we will fall into a recession. I don't think we have cancelled it. I think 0.1
0: with the World Cup on is a particularly bad result. So uh, I guess we'll see on that. Yeah, worth noting, that was only a monthly number as well, and recessions are measured in quarters, so there's still plenty of time for this quarter to finish lower than it started. Um, Okay, in that case, that was November, by the way, actually, I think it was, that was measured Mm -hmm. from the the World Cup. Okay, thinking about higher interest rates and consumers and stuff, let's talk Wells Fargo. Their revenue came in at 19.66 billion, which was down 5%. Their earnings per share came in at 67 cents, which was down by 51%. Mm -hmm. That was mostly due to well, their net interest income was up, like you would expect from pretty much everybody. Only about twenty five percent, which is less than Bank of America or J P Morgan and Wells Fargo, are a, a consumer based bank. But higher credit loss reserve, as you might expect, and a three point seven billion settlement fee for some slightly fraudy activities. I don't think this is the kind of big thing. It's to do with um, assessing people for loans and that kind of thing, uh, and their fee income was lower and stuff like asset management, mostly because lower markets mean lower assets under management, basically. The value of the assets or the price of the assets they own went down. That's what they charge fees based on. So they collected less in the way of fees on that. Um Wells Fargo Steve, did that surprise you by the way? Or did you know about that in advance?
1: No, this I hadn't actually checked on Wells Fargo. They're the bank I often forget about um, I think they like to think of themselves as like recurring revenue for the U.S. government, don't they? Um, but it is interesting to see that their net interest income is not as high as the other banks, though, especially that they specialize in an area where you think they would have been able to jack up the rates a little bit. Um, so it was interesting to see that another $3.7 billion settlement fee Um that's hopefully, I mean, we've said this for, I think, two years now, Steve, but hopefully that's the end of that. It would be nice to see Wells Fargo move away from this kind of constantly paying fines of around three billion pound plus, three billion dollars plus. Sorry. Um But yeah, I think broadly you've covered most of it here. Um Assets, asset management, lower assets under management. I mean, that's just going to come with the territory. Even if you're in the S&P, it's fallen 20 percent. That's difficult to make that up. Um Yeah, interesting for me. Wells Fargo, is it on your watch list?
0: Yes, it feels like the turnaround story that continues to turn, Mm. doesn't it? It feels like every time you think, okay, they've started working their way. And in fairness, um, this is... Charlie Scharf is the CEO there. He's taken over since the scandal and he has not been talking from what i understand it of this being soon he's not been it's not like elon musk with a truck right it's not like he keeps saying next year next year next year next year or something he's very much talking about this being slower and a longer process than Mm. than investors might be hoping for my main takeaway from this is that it shows that you can do enough to bugger up a good situation for your bank then if you get into enough trouble because as you we're rightly saying this Wells Fargo seems like the bank that is structurally best positioned to take advantage of higher rates especially for consumer lending and pretty well protected against investment banking losses because investment banks are just not part of what they do there was a kind of lazy-ish rumor going around when I started investing that they were going to merge with Goldman with a view to putting together a consumer arm and a Um, investment investment bank arm or trading arm that obviously hasn't happened yet I guess you can't say didn't happen until one or other of them goes out of existence but yeah this feels like that with enough pressure and this I guess really illustrates the deep the problems are at Wells Fargo that in a good environment they're still still under pressure there
1: yeah, it was nice to see them responding to um, issues ahead of ahead of things. I, I know back in December they they let quite a large amount of their um, mortgage lending team go, and I think that's in response to the fact that there just won't be the demand for them. There, I think they'll earn more from mortgages, but the demand to actually issue new mortgages will uh, will start to decline, or probably already has started to decline, and. Um, It was nice to see Wells Fargo jump ahead there and and at least get the layoff started. Uh, There's actually layoffs pretty much across the board in banks in their mortgage space. I know JP uh, JP Morgan have uh, laid off a few as well. So uh, these are cyclical things. Uh, Mortgages are cyclical products, uh, uh, unfortunately, for the staff. They're probably not in a safer job as they thought they were maybe nine months ago
0: no and banking in general is quite a cyclical mm. uh, industry uh, maybe not the two parts of the investment banks st- the other kind of big bank stuff we were talking about from bank of america and jp morgan they kind of move in opposition to each other a little bit and mm. that's not to say that they're equally good or equally profitable or equally desirable segments but it is to say that well one of them protects the other one a little bit and it might be that you're always being weighed down by one of them at a falling but Let's get to another specialised thing then. I was planning a slightly deeper dive on some of these, but we might just keep pushing on the way we are, because it feels quite good and we're about 20 minutes in already. So, Goldman then, the opposite of Wells Fargo. Pretty much all institutional banking. They do strictly have a consumer arm, but they mostly get their money from global markets, from investment banking and from asset management. So the kinds of things that are a bit more investment banking in nature. Their revenues were down 16%, so 10.6 billion, their earnings per share were down 39%, uh, $3.32. Did that surprise you at all? Obviously, there were huge misses in their kind of investment banking uh, section. Uh, Kind of what you were expecting here, Steve, or not so much? I think actually it's probably better performance than I expected.
1: I I really like Goldman Sachs stocks. I used I used to own it, um, but I sold it after it after it jumped up quite a bit, um, quite quickly as well. And uh, at the moment, it doesn't really seem like EPS of sort of three dollars thirty odd is it's, it's going to look really really expensive soon. And I know we're going to head towards. Um, I mean, it's ne- it's nearly a four hundred dollar stock off the top of my head, isn't it? Is it three hundred and ninety dollars or something
0: like that? Three hundred and something. Yeah. I'm yeah. Sure. So I think it
1: might be a bit lower than that, but three hundred and something. It's going to look expensive rather, rather quickly for a bank. So I, I wonder what's going to happen with that valuation. I wonder if the market will, uh, obviously understand the situation it's in or whether it will give it the immediate punishment it probably deserves. Um, but yeah, not, not particularly surprised about this. I, I always think of Goldman Sachs as, it's an investment bank first and foremost. It's a consumer arm, although they're making increasing, um, incre- well, they're increasingly looking at like their, going to try and get rid of this consumer and maybe ship it off to somebody else or or make it a lot smaller than it is. Um, But yeah, investment bank first and foremost for me. And when there's just this environment of almost zero investment activity going on, uh, to lose only 16% of revenue,
0: I think that's pretty good. Interesting. I was, yeah, I thought 16% revenue loss was okay. EPS 39%. Wall Street was surprised by this. I know we don't, and I've made a point so far of not calling them beats and misses and so on. It was their biggest miss in a decade, I think, compared to what Wall Street was expecting for their EPS. Um, so your your kind of positivity wasn't shared by the street. Who the hell cares what the street think? For my part, um, I was surprised by this a bit, actually. I mean, I get that... Look, this is a cyclical thing. Obviously, things are going to be worse. So the revenue line took a hit around 45% of the business. The investment banking, the asset management stuff is sensitive to what's going on in the SPAC and IPO market. This is a bad time for that. That's just what you sign up for uh, with Goldman Sachs, right? There is no point complaining that things are going badly when when IPOs aren't happening and SPACs are a thing of the apparently distant past. But what i was surprised by was that goldman wasn't prepared for this better uh, why their cost uh, that their costs weren't under control a bit better so their main cost they have at a bank being any bank is wages effectively and that's something they are making moves to correct kind of now in january i say correct what i mean is unpleasantly they're firing a load of people Basically, because if there isn't the demand for investment banking, you don't need as many investment bankers sitting around when no one's coming through the door saying, look, we want to take this public virus back or we want to launch an IPO. The hell are you paying all these people for? You can't uh, effectively. And Goldman is attempting to right size itself. I'm surprised they didn't do that faster uh, for what it's worth in my case. And, you know, if you're Goldman, you are well used to this kind of thing. You are well used to there being... I was going to say times like 2021 in particular, they sort of were on the way down in 2022. I'm not sure there'll be a time like 2021 quite again in either of our lifetimes. I think that was a a very much a perfect storm for an investment bank and people who were getting excited then and saying, "Well, look, this should trade at a PE of 20 and therefore be a a $1,000 stock." Even the likes of you and me tend to think. You don't stick big multiples on cyclical things when they are at the best they're ever going to be in their cycle. I mean, this isn't just high. This is kind of extreme high. Mm. Yeah, it's like sell
1: your cost level valuation, that, isn't it, I think. Um, Mm. Yeah, so... uh, I agree with you completely, really. And I think there's, there's two schools of, of thought in, in terms of when you're, when you're doing a layoff there's, there's, there's you get ahead of it and you get your layoffs and you minimize the downside or you keep your good, you know, if you feel like you've got a really good team and you don't want to let anyone go, you keep your good team and then you're ready to, you know, you're ready to sprint off the minute, the investment banking landscape sort of sweetens up a little bit. And, it's been a couple of years now, really. Well, we're into the second year of a bad investment banking landscape. This this won't last forever. And you're noticing that the banks, uh, and, and even the Fed to a degree are starting to change the tune a little bit on this, like, recession is coming. It's going to be the worst recession. There's massive economic head. All of that, all of that narrative is now changing and, and it's just sweetening up a little bit. And if we do miss a recession, if we, if we do manage to get out of this scot, if we get this soft landing that, um, You know, that has been sort of touted by idiots on this uh, podcast. Um, Goldman will be really, really well positioned to just race off into the blocks when all the IPOs start again. I mean, uh, this isn't going to be the thing that brings Goldman down, uh, if you see what I mean, unless this is protracted for five or six or seven years. But I just don't see that as being the case. I think they're kind of realizing being a retail bank is probably too expensive. They don't want to do that they want to keep in asset management, they want to keep in investment banking, and they want to keep in trading markets. And I think that's a healthier Goldman, you know, a probably slower growing Goldman because we're not having a fourth sector. Uh, but I think that's the kind of Goldman that I would want to invest in. Again, it's just a little bit expensive at the moment.
0: Yeah, I, saw, I saw, oh, you beat me to the question uh, then in that case. I was going to say uh, stock is down a bit it's not down as much as its uh, revenue and earnings are down but wondering about whether that might start to come down more if we get a few lower earnings calls and whether that might be uh, getting interesting it feels like the time to to be looking at these things anyway when people are looking the other way i mean i wouldn't be i'd be very wary of just looking back two years and saying well look it goes up there at the top of the cycle and it comes down here at the bottom of the cycle it'll be great when it's up there because i'm not sure we'll see 2021 again but looking at it when there might be uh, scope for things to get better. I don't know how soon, but, yeah, I, I kind of got an eye on this. I'm planning on looking a bit more closely.
1: Well, that's it. The problem is that is I... I, I... A bank, like, if you're looking at something like Wells Fargo. Uh, you can see a bank there where things got worse, and then you can see sort of like, and you can reflect that in the share price as well. And you can see like where it's gonna, you know, where you think it's gonna start to get better. And perhaps now is the time that you think it's gonna, it's gonna get better. So there's some optimism, but you're starting at a low base. But with Goldman, I have optimism that this is going to get better for them, but they're already at a high base. In fact, that their results were. You know, I say only 16%, but they only fell a couple of percent on the day. I think it was, it ended up might have been 4 or 5% in the end, but that, that was not, those results were not worthy of a 4 or 5% drop. It should have been double that, I would, I would, I would have guessed off the top of my head, but it's, um, it's strange, I guess. I guess they must see, um, and I wonder if, David Solomon at Goldman is perhaps under a little bit of pressure because his his plan was to bring retail banking to Goldman Sachs. That was was what he wanted to do. And he's now not going to deliver on that. And, you know, now his investment banking arm is down as well. I mean, it's very unlike Goldman Sachs to go cutting CEOs. It it doesn't happen very often at all. But I wonder if his seat could just be getting a little bit warmer at the moment.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting mistake. And it is a mistake that he's come out and said, that didn't go as as well as we'd hoped it would. He put it on Mm. trying to do too much too quickly. I think the big advantage for something like Goldman from a a retail arm isn't that it will particularly start turning itself into a, a J.P. Morgan or Bank of America type thing, but it does give them a kind of access to capital which will make them more efficient on the investment banking side. So you can't just take in customer deposits and then go and use them for trading. It's not quite as straightforward as that, but there are certain capital ratios that you're supposed to maintain since since sort of 2008 and to say things got out of hand then is a bit of an understatement but using customer deposits can in some ways help to offset that and help to make them give them a bit more ammunition to use in trading their trading revenue is up for what it's worth and they are considered i think to be uh, the class of the field when it comes to a lot of these mm. investment uh, banking and trading activities along with jp morgan citigroup depending on exactly what you're looking at they tend to be very good at fixed income and not very good at basically anything else and uh, Morgan Stanley, uh, another one. Who uh, Morgan Stanley? I always forget about when I write down these bank report things. So uh, nothing coming on them for anyone that's waiting. But any final thoughts on Goldman?
1: Uh, None really. I was going to say just quickly on Morgan Stanley. They yeah. were they, their results were pretty good across the board. I think they were up seven percent on the day their earnings mm-hmm. came out. So they were pretty. They they looked pretty strong. They're a little bit broader than uh, Goldman Sachs in terms of their investment banking. So those uh they, they did fairly well out of it but yeah goldman i mean it's a stock i like it's a price i don't like i wish the price was a price i liked because yeah, it's a stock I'd, I'd really like to earn
0: okay last on the list then citigroup they're the one of these that i currently own i'm thinking about quite a few of them to be honest and they look i think they look kind of nice but their revenues for q4 were 18 billion their net income or earnings per share sorry was a dollar 16 their dividend is staying flat They're in the process of attempting to turn themselves around, basically, because what they do is four things. They have an institutional clients division, which generates about 54 percent of revenue, a personal banking and wealth management thing, which is to say U.S. consumer stuff and wealth management, which is 32 percent. Then they have these things called legacy franchises, which are a bunch of consumer operations in Australia, Bahrain, China, Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, Poland, Russia, South Korea, Taiwan, Thailand, Turkey, Vietnam and Mexico, they also do small business stuff in Mexico, that they're in the process of getting rid of. The main reason being those are expensive to maintain and they don't have any obvious synergies with anything else that Citigroup does. So they're kind of satellite things. They made, I think, pretty much nothing in net income on those things this quarter. Uh, And they've got buyers lined up for all of them. They've sold about five of, or completed sales for about five of them. And their plan is basically to get their money out of that because that's very low margin stuff. And it very much doesn't uh, plug into anything else. Like last week when I was talking about Bank of America trying to build out areas where it has a card presence and convert people onto current accounts and savings accounts and mortgages and so on. Citigroup basically does none of that with its consumer banking arm here. So what you have is some pretty low margin stuff there, which is uh, an 8% operating margin, as I see it, a 37% in institutional clients, and 33% in personal banking and wealth management. So those legacy franchises are dragging things. Their hope is to try and reinvest it elsewhere and start driving returns a little bit higher, basically. So that's pretty much Citigroup. They're in the middle of a turnaround. I'm not sticking too much into what they uh, reported this time out. They did the usual stuff, better on their interest income, worse on investment banking, investment banking on absolutely creamed their their fixed income, so bond trading desk did very well, their equities trading desk did less well. Pretty much only stuff we've already said, apart from their distinctive structure, leaving them, I think, at a disadvantage to most of their competitors. Steve?
1: Yeah, uh, Citibank looked really, really strong. I'm glad to see the back of the Legacy franchises. I didn't get that far in the reports, to be honest. I didn't realise was this much of it was actually going. It's, It's been crappy margin stuff for a really long time, and the, uh, it's been really difficult to understand why they were hanging on to it. It was one of the reasons when I did have Citibank, I was really worried about why they were hanging on to this 8% margin, busy falls kind of work, when the margins outside of that are so good. Mm. So it is good to see the back of that. I would expect that they'll get... Quite a large amount of money from these sales, and uh, they'll—I I would assume—they'll invest some of it into themselves and some of it into their stock. I would assume you'll see a healthy buyback coming, or perhaps a maybe a special dividend or something like that, which will be which will be nice to reward Citibank. Um, Shareholders, because it's been a tricky kind of ride for the last four and four and five years for them. They've had they've had their issues because they have um, a large link to consumer debt. Obviously, when COVID came around and the world stopped, everybody was very very worried about consumer debt and and City Link, um, Citibank were at the uh, the front of City Link, Citibank were at the uh, you know the forefront of that. So they they had a pretty hefty drop, but it, it is good to see Citibank uh, back. They look very healthy, they're doing very well, and I think that was probably a good purchase to yours, Steve.
0: Thanks, and when they're not doing that, they enjoy trying to turn themselves into Wells Fargo by randomly wiring money to the wrong, or the wrong amount of money, sorry, to the right people, Revlon creditors. they finally settled that lately, which is why that's at the front of my mind, so that's probably out the way, although they need better internal controls to avoid accidentally crashing markets by pressing the wrong buttons, or, or whatever their latest thing was. Yeah, on the subject of the sales, they've said, not in the most recent earnings call, but in historic ones, the stock trades at about half its book value, so there may well be scope for buybacks mm. there. They're also, But their main plan is to try and redeploy that in places where they see better or higher margin opportunities, or higher return opportunities, I guess I should say. They're keeping their... Um, corporate or uh, business operations in most of these countries one of the things that Citibank bank does do that provides some value to its customers is their big global presence makes them useful for people doing business internationally you can run that through Citibank in various places that doesn't tend to be the case that so there's much value for that with consumers so who the hell cares about your current account in vietnam and needing another one in taiwan or something like that so there's there's less interest on that but they are hanging on to their uh wealth management operations and some of the stuff that is kind of higher value for them anyway enough about banks let's talk about other really interesting companies like say broxer and gamble steve what's been happening there yeah apologies this week i forgot we were doing the banks so here's procter gamble for you another
1: um uh, stomach churningly exciting company um they're they reported results this week and actually for a A company that's very, very steady. These results weren't that good. Um, Stock was down about 2% on the news. Uh, The market thinks these results aren't that bad. But uh, let's have a look. See what you think. Uh, So, look, if you haven't heard of Procter & Gamble, I I guess I can give you a small pass. Um, They're one of those sort of consumer giants with tendrils in everything, so they'll own brands that you will know, like Pampers and like Ariel and Gillette and Head & Shoulders and Olay and Old Spice and those things uh, that the kids thought was a tasty treat during COVID, Tide Pods, Uh, as well as hundreds of other brands that you'll have seen when you're doing your weekly shop. Um, It's one of those dividend... um, Dividend, uh, What do you call it, Steve, when you've got 66 consecutive years of dividend
0: increases? Is that a king? 66 would be a king. 50 for a king, 25 for an aristocrat, 10 for a contender or something, and 5 for a Briscoe's portfolio. Hmm. So, as you can tell, it's been a fairly solid,
1: reliable business for people who invest for income. Um, So the headlines on this report was pretty much slight misses across the board, P&G has pretty much been trying to sort of pass on uh, inflation-led increases uh, to its consumers and on the face of these results look to have been somewhat unsuccessful, which is strange for a business like Procter & Gamble because this is what Procter & Gamble is supposed to be able to do. So here's some of the figures. Uh, It was a 0.2% miss on revenue. Uh, This was due to weak sales on the beauty and the grooming sections of the business. The grooming section, which missed by as much as 6.6% on their guidance. Uh, Healthcare, fabric, and baby all came in better than expected uh, by around 1%. Uh, They missed on op margin guidance, falling 72 basis points to a still healthy-looking 20% operating margin. Um organic growth across the board was a total miss in all categories except the fabric section. Grooming actually managed zero growth whatsoever. Um so I think this is potentially worrying. We know inflation has been as much as eight or ten percent. So so to see growth coming in at half uh, of that is is a little bit worrying. I think it's it's masking that a small section of Procter and Gamble's customer base uh seem to be trying something else or shopping down so I, I don't think it's a huge issue i think this is um you know it's going to be a rising price this cost of living this means that some people just won't be able to afford procter and gamble brands because they are they tend to be mid mid-range brands um the worrying thing for me was that they're guiding for uh, revenue to stay flat steve 0% and they're uh, even saying that it could decline by uh, up to 1% And they think that EPS will be between 1% up and 4% up, Steve. That doesn't leave an awful lot for a dividend
0: increase. It doesn't leave an awful lot for a dividend increase. And you are, to my mind, right in thinking it's the point of these kind of defensive stocks that they're meant to offer you some sort of inflation protection what is the point of having a bunch of brands if it doesn't allow you to raise your prices to consumers without them all running away and either they haven't raised their prices to consumers or they have raised them and most of them have run away, or a lot of them sorry have run away leaving them basically back where they started again so a 0.2 percent miss I, I kind of call that a meet i guess uh, i'm not really sure where i think uh, meeting is kind of i suppose strictly it is a miss but uh, i'm not too worried about a 0.2 percent miss but my thought is yeah i mean if you think inflation is going to be at close to uh, even two percent or something along those lines why you would be interested in buying a company uh 20 something times earnings png yeah. these stocks do tend to hold up fairly well i was looking at unilever the other day which is in a similar spirit but in some slightly different categories and looking at that and thinking to myself, well, this has actually held up quite well. And where it once looked kind of attractive when everything else was at a P ratio of 30, it looks quite unattractive now because it's roughly the same proposition and other stuff is doing worse. On the point about shopping down from uh, p and G, I I thought P&G might be the kind of thing that people would shop down to. I know that Pampers is supposed to, is. Not supposed to be it is a well-known well-respected well-trusted name i have some of their products back there i don't wear them personally but i tend to put them on the baby but i thought they might be the kind of thing where people who were coming out of a nice big liquidity effort might have been buying kind of higher end stuff so nappies that are made out of bamboo and other such stuff that we don't use because we use reusables and they're the worst thing ever but that people might have kind of fallen back onto buying kind of the ordinary Pampers stuff which the price isn't super premium on these things but that doesn't seem to have happened either uh, so i'm i'm kind of slightly surprised by that and i also thought they were exposed to pretty good categories unlike unilever which was exposed to Food, which has shown no growth at all, I thought kind of personal products and the like were meant to be a bit more encouraging from P&G.
1: Yeah, and same here. I think that's, like you said, it's the whole point of uh, Procter & Gamble is that uh, you're paying 25 times earnings because you've got a company here that will exponentially increase its sales by at least the rate of inflation, um, which will in turn spit out a 2.5% dividend or whatever whatever it, you know it is at the moment. So I think it's a... I mean, I've long said it was a fairly expensive uh, um, company. I think I've said that before in one of my, I just don't understand why it's here. I think revenue growth of zero and EPS growth of um, three or four or even less than that is is not enough to maintain the 25p ratio. But it also makes a mockery of dcf calculations which is something we've long laughed at is that you know somebody would put a 12 exit on something like procter and gamble and it, it very very rarely trades down as low as that so um it, it makes it just makes it very very difficult to value this is one of those stocks i think that you've got to buy in the mindset that you're buying it for the dividend uh, and you you know you're not going to realize the capital appreciation or depreciation of your money and you're just there to receive those for quarterly payments, which, you know, you would assume Procter & Gamble will be able to make for the rest of its lifetime.
0: I think so. I wouldn't expect demand to fall for their products ever particularly. I mean, even, even in a recession, to be honest, I think they are reasonably well kind of placed here. The way these companies, as I understand them, try to achieve growth isn't usually by pushing volumes, because it's not about... In the case of Pampers, I'm not going to buy more nappies than I can use. The the kid goes through them at the rate he goes through them at. I'm not going to start putting them on faster or anything like that. But they tend to do it, I think, by trying to shift their uh, portfolio and buy new products and sell other products and and try and get themselves exposed to whatever they consider to be important growth vectors. I thought quite highly of P&G on this. But maybe I'm kind of wrong in that regard. I mean, maybe the idea of something you'd hope for slightly better than than three percent revenue growth, given that we're supposed to be trying to fend off inflation here. Yeah, well, th-
1: this is the thing with, um, <coughs> with with Procter and Gamble is you get a new word introduced to your vocabulary, which is shrinkflation. I don't know oh, if yeah, ever come that, across that. I yeah. have
0: come across shrinkflation. And, yes, and this I always is thought where the thing about my imagination. By the way, I just thought I'd got bigger.
1: <laughs> and this is why, you know, things like Pampers, which you maybe used to have 10 in a pack, all of a sudden have nine. Uh, and that's kind of the way that um, Procter & Gamble make more money or make more um, earnings, at least, is that they, they start to cut what's in the packet. And you'll know this if you if you ever bought a wagon wheel when you were a young lad. Uh, they used to actually be big. They were called a wagon wheel because they were about the size of a wagon's wheel at one point, and now they're, you know, they're barely the size of like a, a Tonka car or a Hot Wheel <laughs> wheel but um yeah i mean it was very interesting to see that the other thing to note is that it's not a particularly worrying sign to see people trade down because when people trade down they often get a poor poor brand experience because products are cheaper for a reason uh they tend to not have the even some even though some benefits that you'll get from a branded product are perceived and not real uh, people can uh, believe them into reality so you'll find that when economic uh conditions lighten somewhat you'll find that people trade back up to uh p&g um from what i'm thinking is from p&g down to maybe supermarket's own brands and i would expect them maybe to pop back up into p&g brands going forward so i don't think this is a huge issue going forward i am worried that they're looking to, to decline revenue you, you would hope that they're going to do something about that um but yeah i think it's uh very very expensive business i mean i certainly wouldn't
0: be buying it is it even on your watch list steve no not really i'm familiar with shrinkflation because i do own craft hides who basically have said in recent quarters that they are indeed going in for shrinkflation their idea is that people like being able to buy a thing of ketchup for a one pound fifty or whatever it is and they don't really care whether the amount they get is the same or slightly smaller but what they don't want to do is come in and find them having to pay more at the till for the thing Um, And that's, I think, I think it's quite a smart move. It reminds me a little bit of something that my wife uh, showed me on either Instagram or Twitter or some other horrific social media thing that I didn't see for myself because I don't look at them very much. But it was when fuel prices were going up and someone said, I don't know why it's such a problem that fuel prices are going up. Just put 20 quids worth in. There you are. Uh, And it will cost the same thing. I mean, that's basically shrink in action from what i can see of it you just get less for your for your 20 quid you spend the same amount but get less stuff and that's um it's a reasonable way of protecting people from finding their supermarket bills are too high it just means that they get less stuff for it though yeah and that's that's it isn't it and i think look i think it's a
1: very good strategy for these kind of companies because they've got to such a scale that it's very difficult for them to make more money especially when you know they can't go out and throw money at new brands because you know they're going to fall under the um uh, under the commissions that regulate this. So, uh, one of the ways that you can do it is by uh, a little bit of shrinkflation and obviously by trying to get a 2% increase through or maybe a 1.5% increase through some of the inflation costs through. Um, it's a really, really sensible and, and well used a strategy across the sort of seven big companies that run everything we buy in the supermarkets so mm. um yeah interesting one for me um i'd like to answer my own question earlier
0: I, I just couldn't buy it no i don't think i could at the moment either but they're gonna be okay though i mean neither of us thinks they're in any imminent danger uh, do you know why they're not in any imminent danger steve who's on their board Is it Nelson Peltz? It is Nelson Peltz is on their board. He's attempting to get himself onto the Disney board as well. He's also on the board at Unilever. He's uh, on the board at at Wendy's, so he's well familiar with this kind of space. He has historically been on the board at, at, as it was then, H.J. Hines, so before the Kraft Hines stuff, and at Mondelez. So he's also trying to get himself onto the board at Disney. And, well, there's sort of news on this. Steve, what's been happening, do you know? Yeah, basically
1: that he's trying to do what every activist investor does is push his way onto the board. He does this in a way, he's got a very set way of doing it. So he says to the board, I have a a spreadsheet that shows you all of your dirty underwear. Uh, Sorry, a presentation that shows all your dirty Hmm. underwear. I won't show it to the public if you give me a, a seat on the board. And then, uh, invariably, he's either given a seat or he's not given a seat. And if he's not given a seat, he puts the presentation public and tries to embarrass the company in that way. It's a it's a strange tactic, really, for you know going to see going to a meeting with a bunch of people you've just threatened and potentially blackmailed in in a in a legal ish way. But uh, yeah, I was interested to see the the rebuff by Disney, um, a somewhat kind of non-professional response or unprofessional response i guess it was lacking a bit of tact uh they basically highlighted that uh nelson's record in this sector is worse than poor and uh they were not particularly happy with the way he's tried to go about his business so he has released his presentation and it's not really got much in it that you would um no, that you would really want to jump out at they basically said that he they need to acquire Hulu and he thinks that the buying Fox was a very bad idea and nickel and diming people at the park is essentially and it's like none of these things are particularly new things. But I mean we, we spoke about these months ago when we talked about ChaPek leaving, these are all things we uh, we covered then. So I didn't think this was a particularly... uh, almost a non-story, Steve. What did you think?
0: Yeah, I saw the response. The response was interesting to me for exactly the reason you pinned down, not because of the general message, which was, we're not interested, but for the way they kind of communicated that message. So Motley Fool's podcast picked out a slightly different quote, but the one that stuck out to me was, Nelson Peltz does not understand Disney's business and lacks the skills and experience to assist the board. I thought to myself at first... Well, to an extent, what do you expect them to say? You you think they're going to come along and say, oh, good, finally, someone who knows about DirecTV, we've been waiting for this for ages, not got a clue how we're meant to be doing that. That just looks like a massive sinkhole, but we're getting run over by Netflix. Good, someone is here to come and help us out. They were never going to say that. Um, But equally, it didn't have to be the case that they quite uh, attempted to undercut him in quite such an aggressive fashion. They pointed out he has a, a less than impressive track record when it comes to madison square gardens which is the kind of media company that he's been involved with uh, Peltz pelt's pointed out that disney's shares have underperformed for the market for quite some time there hasn't been a dividend he's looking to get that back by i think 2025 so not looking amazing for paul's prediction i can't remember whether that was on air or off air that there'd be a disney dividend this year it's not looking particularly likely at the moment one thing i did notice about disney though is it's not so long ago they were dealing with some other activist investor action. They had Dan Lowe at third point making broadly the same points that this acquisition of Fox has put a lot of debt on the balance sheet and that they uh, now have a, a, they're in a far worse financial position than they were. Debt at Disney is a thing that we've talked about before on this show there's quite a bit of it we're not too worried about it overall though it doesn't look like it's going to be a serious issue going forwards but peltz is concerned it could well be a big headwind in response to the point that he has no track record in large cap media companies he says it's a consumer company and he does have a good track record in consumer companies there might be some truth to that but i wonder whether disney are just getting fed up with seeing activist after activist because they as it were paid off dan Lower by allowing someone a seat on the board uh, There, carolyn everson who was a third point person so you sort of think that look, if every time an activist shows up they get a seat on the board they're going to start forming a queue and disney's going to need another turnstile for that as well and that's it isn't it i think um the problem with this is really it came nine days
1: into Iger's return and they already had a chairman hmm. that they were uh, waiting to um you know waiting to introduce to um you know, introduced to the board, which is obviously the co-chairman. Well, he's not co-chairman; he is chairman of the board at Nike. Matt Parker is going to be chairman of the board doesn't, You're getting a new board, so really adding Nelson Peltz to it at the moment is kind of like unnecessary. I mean, perhaps you know, two three years down the lo- down the down the lane, if Iger still hasn't got a um, succession plan sorted, which you know that's not his strong point. It's something he's consistently failed at. Um, then perhaps a Peltz or a Loeb would be somebody you'd think, yeah, let let's have these guys on the board. Let's see them try and push through a proper transition to a proper kind of and, and it and it's look. It, you can not disagree with them when they say that Disney has underperformed because in terms of its stock performance, it's been it's been poor for the last five years. But that's kind of like what I see is them kind of you know we're, we're consolidating together to, to to roar off with Disney here. My issues with them is is that I think they've rushed into streaming. I think. I would have much preferred a slower burn into streaming. I don't understand why they were so desperate to, to, um, to, 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 do it in the way that they've done it. But we're here now. There's not much we can do about it. It would be nice to see them, um, you know, start to grow all areas of the business, get all the parks open. That'll be a big catalyst for them. Which was one of their responses to him, He's saying it's hard to judge us on parks when they've been, when they've been closed. Which is, you know, one of the reasons we thought Chairpick was perhaps a little bit. Uh, could be a little bit unhappy with, you know, being told his parks were a failure. But I just didn't, I thought this was a a big, uh, a story that was blown way out of proportions. This is somebody trying to buy a seat with not enough money, um, threatening the board with a very small stake. And I just thought this was too early in Iger's tenure. I don't think anybody would have got onto the board.
0: I don't think think it's Nelson Pelts. I think it would have just been anybody. Yeah, um, so we don't think this is significant. Both Steve and I are Disney shareholders. Probably the only thing less significant than, or, or one thing at least that is significantly less significant than uh, Nelson Phelps's attempt at landing a seat on the board is what we think of it, for what it's worth. This is, as shareholders, there's not a lot we can do about this either way. It's going the way it's going, and we either have to live with it or sell our way out of it, basically, or buy our way into it further if we like it a lot. I guess I'm, I'm feeling sort of sympathetic here. I think Disney and who cares what I think, in the grand scheme of things, this may or may not affect anything, but they feel like they are attempting to put in moves to do the sorts of things that Pelts wants. They have a new board, as you pointed out. They've got their CEO back from... This story began in November uh, 21st. So around the time that this was kind of being formulated, it would have been Bob Chapek in charge at Disney. So they've got, on the face of it, a new CEO, a new board. They've announced cost-cutting measures, which again just means job losses it feels to me like I if I were an activist investor wondering about this and maybe this is why I'm not an activist investor I'd like to see this given a bit of time to work first of all and then and then see if it's not hmm. going to I mean it might be the timing just didn't line up for for pelts in the way that it was looking like it might do but it does feel to me like this is perhaps a little bit um, a, like they're doing stuff anyway and might give them a chance to to see how that pans out before we start firing the activist gun everywhere
1: well we've we've talked about this before you can have a silent activist investor who all of a sudden turns into a loud one and that's kind of what you know i would have said would have been a better plan for nelson peltz but do you know somebody else um steve who has a new ceo uh patch That would be Netflix. I'm just reading at the top of CNBC today live that Reed Hastings has given up his CEO role. Uh, Is he going going to to be a chairman? He's moving on to chairman, as Uh, they often do. Uh, It's going to be Ted Sarandas and Greg Peters are going to run it. Uh, CEO is Greg Peters. And I'll give you the results, Steve, because we've got them live. We might as well say them. ETS was a. A big miss. They were expected to do forty-five cents, but they've only done twelve cents. Revenue was seven point eight five billion. They were expected to do seven point eight five billion, so that's a that's a bang on hit. Global paid net subscribers, Steve. They were supposed to do four point five seven million. Perennial sandbaggers did seven point six six million. So it's a very big beat, and shares have jumped about eight percent as we're
0: looking at the moment. So doing very well good news for yourself then as a Netflix shareholder significant Netflix Netflix on the ticker meter Netflix on the ticker meter there we go that's that one sorted um the stuff about Netflix does lend itself to the point that you were making before actually about Disney's pace in trying to get into um the streaming market it feels to me like Disney's something that doesn't have to particularly rely on being first into people's houses with this this kind of thing. so what i was thinking there is that look if people if disney launches its subscription service in a year's time or something like that people will either want it or not want it and roughly the same people will want it as we'll want it now um, and it feels like the kind of race to be first on this and this might speak to the netflix earnings that we've just seen or you've just reported for us It's a tough time to be in there at the moment. It feels like there's some sort of consolidation due or there are too many people, some of which are going to fall away or be acquired, and they're all busy fighting each other for what is currently not a particularly profitable endeavour. And if I were Disney, I'm not sure I'd want to be part of it while it's like that. I'd rather see how the model works, see that it makes some money for some people, and I get that that might be the future of, of entertainment in a certain way, but if it didn't really make any money, what the hell do I care? And Disney stuff, I think, is importantly timeless, which is quite a lazy word, but I think it does mean that you don't have to worry about getting in there first and being sticky. What you can do is try and insert yourself afterwards once you've seen how things are going to pan out. It's not just that as well. that Disney has the
1: sort of content where people don't just watch it once. Mm. So even if you had seen it at the cinema I think there'd be people who would still go on to watch it maybe two or three times more at Disney Plus and I say that broadly about a lot of their content um, it was only um, yesterday that the, the guy who sits opposite me at work was talking about the Mandalorian new series coming and he wants to go back and watch the whole of the other two series before he watches the third one which is just like to me that just seems kind of kind of loopy, but it also kind of by reinforced in my head that there 's people out here who really love Disney content no matter what it is, and they 're willing to go watch things you know a number of times. I mean you must be experiencing it now steve with with your child, you must be watching things on Disney that you perhaps watched as a child yourself, so the, the level of content that they um, that they have is is almost timeless so uh, uh, as you say so it's uh yeah it just keeps coming round and round and round and and every so
0: often disney remakes them as well yeah you overestimate my child at six months at the moment he's currently watching lights on the ceiling and a nice light (laughs) box that we've got that flashes he's a bit he's a bit of a way off that just yet he's also fascinated by a mirror uh for for, (laughs) um reasons that are not entirely implausible is it a mickey mouse (laughs) mirror it's not a Mickey Mouse. We don't have a Mickey Mouse mirror, sadly. He he does very much enjoy faces though and people I and I'm hear not a house sure that he, in he necessarily recognises that oh there's some fancy mirrors now. Uh that um I was having someone consult on a bathroom and they were telling me about mirrors that light up and are anti fog and all kinds of things. Great bit Apple. of kit, he said. You do? Uh okay, so Steve's house is the one with the fancy mirror and a two dozen bags of apples outside <laughs> of it. Anyway, um, I had a thing about the Fox acquisition meaning a potential learn-up for a new CEO, Dana Walden, and that's the thing Disney were using to justify that and help the succession plan along. But that's far too serious of a point to be making at this stage in a podcast. If anyone's still there... Thank you very much for listening. We've reached the hour mark pretty much. That was good fun. I enjoyed that a lot. We talked about a lot of things that were not stocks, but thank you for staying with us. Thanks for being here. If you want any apples, talk to Steve. If you have any idea of what he should put on his ticker box, let us know. If you want to know where Paul is, don't ask either of us. He's just shown up in our DMs. Um, hopefully Hall listens this about the Netflix report. Never mind. See you next week.